Well, Rock, would you come on up and uh, teach us how not to worry? I will do that, my friend. I'm looking forward to that and, today, uh, sir. Speaking of worry, I may go a little beyond my 35 minutes allotted time. I want to get that out now so that you don't worry about it, because <laughs> as the message goes, hopefully you will not panic, all right? I'm not going to abuse the time, but nevertheless, I may have a little bit more than 35. So, and I, I won't ask who the first one is uh, who was in today earliest, because we did have the time change. I'm just glad you're here. But I would say it's this little uh, early bird right here. He's facing this way because he was leading the charge. I'm going to turn him around so he can look at you because he's proud of you early birds for being here. He's taking a look around. Let me give him a drink of water here, by the way. He looks a little, there you go. All right, I'll have some too. All right, if you want to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to spend some time in a, a really relevant uh, text and subject that we're going to cover this morning. Um, I think we all live in this zone, and you'll see what I'm talking about here in just a minute. But before we dig in, let's spend some time speaking with the author of this book, the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, we want to thank you for giving us this very relevant and helpful section of Scripture. You know what we're all about. You know what we go through. And you care deeply. And so I pray for myself and for each one of my brothers and sisters here that your spirit would visit with us, that you would grant us your supernatural peace. And we pray, Lord, that this would transcend just being here today, but rather as you work in and through us, you will realign our thinking, our priorities, the way we approach this world, the way we interact with others. Give us your perspective, dear God. And help us to have a greater measure of your peace in our lives, not only for our own good, but for your greater glory and your pleasure, and also for the blessing of other people as they see your peace exhibited in our lives. So be glorified, Lord. Give us a teachable spirit. We pray all this in your awesome name. And Lord, all my friends said, amen. amen. Praise the Lord. Matthew chapter 6. Now, a couple days ago, I got on the internet and did a Google search, and if you were to do a Google search and key in the word worry, W-O-R-R-Y, my question to you would be this, and don't do that now, otherwise I'll be worried that you're on the net for my whole sermon and not paying attention. So, but if you were to key in the word worry, how many entries do you suppose you would find in Google? And don't do that, just guess. What do you think? 10,000? Do I hear 180,000? So, no, actually, here's, what I, I, here's a quote. This is literally what I saw about two days ago. It may have changed. Quote, about one, one, eight, zero, 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 zero. 1,180,000,000 entries on worry. What does that tell you about this subject? It's epidemic, right? It's worldwide. It seems to me, uh, after living so many years, just about everybody on this planet worries about one thing or another. And that doesn't change depending on how old you are and your circumstances. If it's not health, it's this, it's that, right? It's always something. The Lord Jesus knows that. He put us together. He knows what goes on in our world. He cares that much. He knows about things that we experience even before we experience them. 
He knows in advance how you'll be feeling three days from now. You don't, I don't. Now, because worry is so pervasive in our society, most people think that it is normal to worry because we live with it all the time, right? I mean, after all, is it not normal to worry about making the grade in school? Is it not normal to worry about losing a job or having adequate income during retirement? Is it not normal to worry about a failing marriage, being rejected by peers, facing the future alone? And what about that future spouse? When's that going to happen? Is it not normal to worry about crime on the streets, declining health, or getting smothered by debt in a very bad economy? And on and on, the list just keeps going, right? It really doesn't end. So what are you anxious about? What causes you to worry? The reason I ask, because I'm just like you, I worry too. I don't know any human being that doesn't worry, at least from time to time. So I don't even think the goal is to eradicate worry, because I don't know if that's going to happen this side of heaven, but at least we can get it under control, right? The question is, though, is our worry normal? It seems to be because we worry all the time. But just like sin, by way of analogy, people sin every day, we think that's normal, and it's not. If we were to get in our time machine and go back to the Garden of Eden before the fall... What was normal was a state of innocence. We're broken. We are abnormal, if you know what I mean, because of sin. It's not the norm. It shouldn't be. We think it is. Same thing with worry. It's not how it should be. Now, before we go any further, we need to distinguish two concepts, because often when this subject comes up, I hear the word concern coupled with the word worry. So let's define concern. What does concern mean? Here's a definition of concern. To be concerned is to have a healthy interest in something that is important to you. Catch the word healthy there. This is not bad. In fact, we should be concerned about some things, right? You say, well, my child has pneumonia and it looks like a pretty bad case and I'm concerned. Well, you should be. In fact, if you weren't concerned, I'd have to wonder about you as a parent, right? So there's nothing wrong with concern. We cross the line, though when we get into worry. So what does worry mean? Here's a definition of worry, and that is to become anxious over disturbing thoughts that may or may not come to pass. When you think about it, worry really is self-torment. It doesn't accomplish anything good, and there's only negative consequences that come along with it. If you were to trace out the word worry, it has a German Cognate, W-U-R-G-E-N, Vergen. If you're German, you can correct me later. I want to say Wergen, but we have Wagner and it's Wagner. We have Volkswagen, so I'm guessing it's Vergen. But nevertheless, that's the word. And that word means to strangle. What a word picture. Worry strangles our thoughts, it chokes our emotions, and it devours our physical health. And so out of compassion for us, because again, he made us and he loves us, the Lord Jesus gives us this incredibly helpful teaching right here in Matthew 6. If you're not there, you'll want to turn there. And what he does in this section, because he's concerned about us and our condition, is he exposes worry for what it really is. And then he issues a command to me and to you 
And that command is very simple. It's just three words. Do not worry. Do not worry, dear child. You say, well, preacher, that's in the Bible. I believe it. Amen. But honestly, I need a little more help than just a command. Can you give me some solid reasons, something maybe to motivate me, to carry me through? Paint a picture for me. What am I up against here? What are my resources? Great questions. You're firing on all cylinders. Considering you lost an hour's sleep, you're asking some great questions. Incidentally, I'm sleep talking right now. Am I doing okay? I'm not sure. I'm having a dream as we speak. So, so I want to do this for the rest of our time, and that is I want to consider some reasons why we should not worry. Jesus lays them out for us. Why should we not worry? And the first reason is this. We shouldn't worry because worry is unreasonable. Worry is unreasonable. When you really think it through and press through, you'll come to the conclusion that, hey, this is unreasonable. Worry is unreasonable. Now, if you're in Matthew 6, I want you to look at the words of Jesus there, picking up in verse 25. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Notice he says right at the beginning there, for this reason I say to you, for what reason does Jesus issue this command? Look at the previous verse, verse 24. In fact, this whole section springs forth from verse 24. You see it there? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will have hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoured, or be devoted, I should say, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It's, it's either or. They're mutually exclusive. So since you can't serve God and wealth, therefore do not worry about serving riches. Rather, serve God. Why? Because he will supply all your needs. Did you catch the word needs there? It's not the word wants. Sometimes we want things that aren't good for us or things that send us off on the deep end. But he promises to provide for our needs. So that's the first source. He is the first source, right? And so he says, look at verse 25, do not be worried about your life. And that word worry appears five times in this passage, so I think we're on to something here. I'm pretty safe in saying that worry is the main subject of this text because he keeps repeating it over and over again. Now, notice the question there, verse 25, is not life more than food? Here he's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. Is not your very existence of more value than food? I mean, it's pretty logical. I mean, what good is food to a dead person? If you get in a generous mood and say, I'm going to go to the local cemetery, I'm going to buy three cases of uh, Campbell's chicken soup and put one on each tombstone to feed these people. You come back a week later... The cans aren't open. Guess why? These people are out of existence, right? Food is to promote life, physical food for us anyway. And so he's saying, if you have existence, uh, don't worry about food. God's going to provide if he puts you into existence, right? And then he says, and the body more than clothing. So if God gave us the greater life and also a body, he can certainly give us the lesser, and that is food and clothing. Now, that's pretty reasonable if we're thinking straight, right? What good is clothing 
if you don't have a body, obviously. And so when we're thinking straight, we can see that worry is unreasonable, but when we are worrying, we're not thinking straight, and that's the problem. So this is really a, an issue for the mind here, right? So now, he, as being the master teacher, he gives us an audio-visual here. He says, verse 26, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Now, Palestine was crossroads of uh, bird migrations. Perhaps there was a flock of birds passing by, and Jesus pointed to them. He's doing that a lot if you study throughout the Gospels, study his teaching. He points to things that people can relate to, that they can see with their own eyes. And so he makes an observation here. He says, notice that those birds do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Birds don't engage in the normal cycle of producing food. Think about that cycle, planting, watering, fertilizing, pulling weeds. I don't see birds doing that. I wish they would. I'd want them to come in my yard and help me out. If anything, they decorate my yard with other things. But nevertheless, they don't help. Harvesting, they don't harvest. They don't store in barns, right? And yet they're alive. Somebody's taking care of them. Who might that be? It's probably the one to whom they sing, right? It says that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So, in other words, dear friends, with the act of creation, God assumed the responsibility to provide for all of our needs. Think about it. Now, I'm not a nutritionist, a biologist. I'm not that smart of a guy. But I do know that the body needs certain vitamins, right? C, D, A. My point is this. You should be able to find those vitamins somewhere on this planet. If God put us here, and if I need vitamin C, I should find an orange tree or something that contains that vitamin. And all of those vitamins and minerals are on this earth by coincidence? No, by God's commitment to provide for us. He put us here and committed himself to provide and keep us going, right? That's why we're still here, by the way. And so, the birds gather enough for today. They trust their creator for tomorrow's provision. And they do not chug down ulcer medicine. Have you seen any birds chugging ulcer medicine lately? I haven't. They look pretty calm. They're singing every morning, right? Maybe we can learn from them. Maybe that's why the creator of the birds and the creator of us points to them to say, you know, these birds got something on you people here. You may want to learn from them. It's good wisdom. Don't miss the word. Verse 26, your heavenly father, dear friend, Christian, he's our father and we are his children. You see, the birds only know him as creator. They can't claim him as father the way we can. And so... The bird's trust in their creator is really a rebuke to us who are not only created by him, but for Christians, we have a father-child relationship, right? He says, are you, that word's emphatic there, are you not worth much more than they, reasoning from the lesser, the birds, to the greater, that's us. So in God's eyes, we are worth far more than animals. Now, humans and birds both can call God their creator because all humans are created in his image. So even unbelieving humans can call him creator. But again, there's something unique here about us. When I say us, I mean those of us who have received Christ as Savior. And that is we not only call him creator, but again, there's that father-child relationship. It's special. 
of all people on this globe, of all creatures in the universe, we should be the ones trusting him most and looking to him for our sustenance, our joy, our happiness, our peace, etc. So the birds are really a rebuke to us, are they not? Verse 27, don't miss it. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? It's unreasonable to think that anyone can lengthen their life by worrying. In fact, uh, worrying doesn't lengthen life. It does what? Shortens it, right? For most people, there are some physical effects. We can't worry ourselves to life, but we can certainly worry ourselves to death, correct? So, Dr. Charles Mayo of the Mayo Clinic says this, Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I've never known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who die of worry. Point. Worry accomplishes nothing. I mean nothing good. Nothing. There's nothing redeeming about it. And so the next time you begin to worry, stop and take time to ask the Lord in prayer. Train yourself to do this. Lord, do I really have good reason here to worry? Or to paraphrase, do I have good reason to torment myself? The answer is obviously no, because worry is unreasonable. And this is why Jesus says, don't worry, child. Don't worry. Why, Jesus? Well, because worry is unreasonable. But he gives us a second reason why we should not worry. And that is, and this is a strong one, think about it, worry is unbelief. Worry is unbelief, according to Jesus. Look at verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Wow. He says, observe how the lilies of the field grow. Now, perhaps Jesus pointed the wildflowers and the fields. They were all over the place there. By the way, that word observe means to study closely. Did you ever get up really close and look at uh, a lily or any kind of a flower? I think of, if you ever been out to California, the poppies out in the mountains, how beautiful they are. They're just simple. But when you get up close, you got to say, whoever designed these is the master artist. Somebody really knows how to paint. Somebody really knows how to engineer. And wow, it smells so great too. How good is this God that treats us to such beauty? When he could have made everything just shades of gray, right? He says, they do not toil, nor do they spin. Toil refers to laboring in the fields to collect clothing material like picking cotton or whatever. To spin uh, is the process of making clothing. The wildflowers have no part in adorning themselves. And yet they're decked out pretty nice, aren't they? They're styling, you might say. And they're always in style, no matter what the decade is. Bell-bottoms were in and out. For, those, for you young people, if you don't know what bell-bottoms are, check with your parents. They may remember. I don't know. It says, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. 2 Chronicles 9, for your notes, 2 Chronicles 9, 23 and 24, says this regarding Solomon. And all of the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his gifts. Notice the gifts now, articles of silver, 
articles of gold, garments, so much year by year. These very wealthy leaders, national leaders, were coming to Solomon for his wisdom and bringing gifts, designer stuff, Armani, and I'm not into all the latest fashions. I get my stuff at Walmart, so what do I know? Or the blue light special at Kmart. You ever been there? So anyway, my point is Solomon was one well-dressed dude. This guy had more clothes than he can wear in a lifetime. Of course, he had his own money. He can buy or make his own stuff. So Solomon's regal wardrobe was no match for God's handiwork. You see, the pristine beauty of these wildflowers cannot be improved upon. The old cliche, uh, you can't gild, what is it? Gild the lily, is that the expression? Meaning you can add some gold to it, you're actually going to ruin it. It's, it's perfect, leave it be the way God made it. It's beautiful. That's the idea here. Look at how he decked out the wildflowers. Now notice verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, that would be these wildflowers, which is alive today and then tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Wow. You see, wood was scarce in Palestine, and so wildflowers were gathered from the field, and they were used as the kindling to get the furnace going because they didn't have a lot of wood in the region there. So these things, as soon as you pull them, they dry out, and they would use them as a kindling to get things fired up. And he's saying, you know what? Look at how beautiful these things are. Look at the very detailed design in them. God took great care with these things, and yet they're here today, gone tomorrow. Now, what about you? You're worth way much more. He says, will he not much more clothe you? Verse 30. So if God dressed the wildflowers with such exquisite beauty then he will certainly dress his children with the garments they need. Now, this is, this is, don't take this as a promise from God that you're going to get all the designer stuff, right? But you're certainly going to have a shirt on your back, that kind of a thing, right? He's going to provide. And so, catch it at the end there. Don't miss it. You of little faith. Literally in the Greek, you little faiths. This is a rebuke. You see, the root of worry is a weak faith. Worry according to Jesus, is unbelief. Well, a widow who had successfully raised, uh, let's do a little Sesame Street here. Um, some of you may have five children. I already know you're busy. Can you imagine raising ten children? Wow. Can you imagine, maze, I, don't, I wish I had a third hand, fifteen children? Let me throw in three more for extra measure. Can you imagine raising eighteen children? Talk about stress, huh? So this woman, a widow, who had successfully raised 18 children, was interviewed by a reporter, and when he asked her for the secret of her success, she replied, well, I managed well because I'm in a partnership. Of course, he was puzzled by that, and so he said, well, partnership, what do you mean? And the widow replied as follows, well, many years ago, I said, Lord, I'll do the work, and you do the worrying. I have not had an anxious care ever since. See, she gave it over to the Lord. She was trusting God to provide. She raised 18 kids and did a good job. God must have been in the mix there somewhere, huh? We can learn from this, right? And we all have different givens in our lives, things that challenge us. But nevertheless, it seems to me, dear Christian, let me ask you, if you've received Christ as Savior, are you trusting Jesus for all eternity? Are you entrusting your eternal future, putting it in his hands? Sure you are. So am I. 
So if we can trust our eternal future with Jesus, can't we trust our temporal family needs with Jesus? Hello? And that's what he's trying to say here. You know, look around. It makes me think Old Testament teaching, which complements this. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, for your notes if you want it. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. What does it say there? It's a command. This is the positive now. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And then, this seems counterintuitive, he says, and lean not on your own understanding. Now, wait a minute, Lord. You gave me understanding. You gave me a mind. You asked me to love you with my mind. Now you're saying, don't lean on your own understanding. What does that mean? And then he adds, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. In other words, sometimes you have to doubt your eyes and your ears and trust what God said. Because what you're seeing may be deceiving you. Even if he says something that seems to be the opposite of what your eyes are telling you, his word is more infallible than your eyes and my eyes and your ears and my ears. Because our minds are darkened by our sin. We're not always thinking straight. That's all of us. So we are to trust him with all of our hearts, maintain an ongoing dialogue with him, consult him in every situation, and he will strengthen our faith. And here's the promise. He will guide you and me through all of life's difficulties. He will be there. He may not lift the heat. He might leave it there for a while, but he's got a reason for that. We just keep our feet in the fire. He's up to something good always. So he's saying, dear child, you know I love you. And from my heart to yours... I'm telling you, don't worry. Don't even waste your time. Why? Well, because worry is unreasonable. Worry is unbelief. And here's a third reason, and that is because worry is unbecoming. It just doesn't look too good on a Christian. Worry is unbecoming. Look now at verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? That doesn't look too good for a Christian, does it? For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows what you need, and he knows that you need all these things. He says, do not worry then in light of these lessons from nature, the birds and the wildflowers. Don't worry. And here's why. Because Gentiles, unbelievers, chase after these things. They seek them eagerly. And literally, it's emphatic there, all these things. In other words, the world is obsessed with acquiring material things. If you have the NIV, the way it's worded there, if you'll check it out, it says, for the pagans run after all these things. This is what life's all about for them, right? And the, the delusion there is they think they're going to be happy once they get these things. They don't realize these things are either going to rust, break, you've got to go wait in line with your warranty and get them fixed. And after a while, these things you own, the dirty little secret you're not being told, they own you because you're investing all your time maintaining them, keeping them. I can't trust this person. They want this from me. And all this stuff, the more things we have, the more life gets complex and the less we appreciate the beauty of the awesome things that God gave us, which are free. How much does it cost to go look at the lilies or enjoy the birds? Not, not a whole lot, unless you go to the pet shop, maybe. I don't know. And so, since unbelievers don't have a heavenly father to look after their needs, they look to material possessions for their security. But when Christians, dear friend, when Christians 
don't believe that God will provide, when they worry about their security, they act just like pagans who have no heavenly father. And this is why Jesus is rebuking those of us who act like this. Worry's unbecoming. It just doesn't look good. It's not a good testimony. He says, verse 32, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Now keep your place, but go back a little further in chapter 6, maybe on the next page, earlier on. Look at verse 7. You know the Lord's Prayer, right? Now look at uh, chapter 6, verse 7. And when you are praying, Jesus says, and there's a reason why it's in the same context here, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. Don't be like the unbelievers. For your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And so when we worry about whether or not God knows about our needs, we act like unbelievers. It is unbecoming. Worry doesn't look good. So verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things that the Gentiles are knocking themselves silly for, these things will be added to you. And there's always an if there, and that is if the father deems it will help you if it's good for you. Sometimes a no answer is the best answer. Just like those of us who are parents when our kids are young, Daddy, I want this. Mommy, I want that. Some of these things they're asking for, they don't know it yet. They're not good for them. And so by us saying no as parents, that's an act of love, isn't it? So don't read God the wrong way if he doesn't answer your prayer precisely the way you asked it, right? It may be that's the answer to the prayer, and it's a good answer. So he says, seek ye first. But in contrast to the pagans, seek first his kingdom. That's first, not one of a series, you know, first this, then that. Really, it's above everything, way above even number two. First in importance, way above everything. Seek what? Seek first his kingdom. Submit to his rule. And look for the coming millennial kingdom. In the future, the Lord Jesus is going to come back and set up a thousand-year reign on this earth. We should be looking forward to that time. It's going to be an awesome time where sin is pushed back pretty far. Now, back to chapter 6, uh, verse 10, the Lord's Prayer there. You'll see it. One of the parts of the prayer is, verse 10, Lord, your kingdom come. When's the last time you prayed that the Lord's kingdom would come, that Jesus would come back? That's a good prayer. You might want to incorporate that in your daily devotional time. Lord, may your, let's be kingdom-minded, heavenly good and kingdom-minded. We can do both. They're not mutually exclusive. We can be doing good on this earth now as we wait with great perspective and joy and anticipation for our Lord's return, right? He will set up his kingdom. And so seek his kingdom. Then he says, and his righteousness. We seek his righteousness by submitting to his will. Again, that prayer, chapter 10, 610, your will be done. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's where our thoughts should be. And then we won't be so enamored with all the stuff that rusts on this earth. Verse 33, latter part there. And all these things shall be added to you. Jesus says, you concentrate on your father's kingdom and righteousness, and your father will concentrate on your physical needs. Do you think he has the power to provide for your physical needs? Sure he does. Does he love you? Well, then do the math. What are we worried about? What are we worried about? He's greater than any problem you have. 
What are we worried about? He loves us with an unlimited love. There's nothing you can do in your lifetime that will cause him to stop loving you. And there's nothing you can do to increase his love for you because he loves you to the hilt. He can't love you any more than he does. Infinity is infinity, my friends. What is it, infinity plus a few more ounces? No. He loves you to the hilt. Your job is to rest in his love and trust him. That's what he's asking us to do. That's worship. All these things will, will be added to you. Or as Paul would put it, Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. This is the antidote now. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, with gratitude, in other words. If I'm grateful, I'm not worried. I'm content in him. Let your requests be made known to God. And my God, Paul promises, shall supply all your needs. Again, the word needs. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He's got infinite wealth and he's not stingy. And he loves us. And so God still answers prayer by meeting our needs. And he meets our needs in answer to prayer. So back to the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Can you see that it's unbecoming for God's children to act like pagans who worry about and chase after this world's goods? Worry is unbecoming, dear Christian. That's why Jesus tells us, dear child, do not worry. Why, Jesus? Because worry is unreasonable. And worry is unbelief. And worry is unbecoming. And he gives us one more reason, and that is worry is unnecessary. Absolutely unnecessary. Worry is unnecessary. I would argue it's a waste of time. And worse. Look at verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that the truth? He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Therefore, since all of these things will be added to you, as I promised, it's not necessary to worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow will care for itself. Trust me, I'm in the future too. I was in your past, I'm in your present, and I'm in your future. When you get there, I'll just say, hi, welcome. Nice to see you again. John Curtis, founder of the Stress Management Institute, there's a busy guy. Based on those Google numbers, he's got a lot of patience there, I'm sure. Here's what he says. The founder of the Stress Management Institute, he knows something about stress. He says, I believe that 90% of stress is brought on by not living in the present moment. Worrying about what has already happened, what is going to happen, or what could happen. You see, worry is unnecessary. The best way to face the future is to pray, to plan, of course, and to faithfully obey and execute our responsibilities before the Lord. Whatever he's called us to, whatever vocation you're in, you see, most of the future calamities that we worry about, they actually never come to pass. And so, you know, I've been worrying about this thing for 10 years, and now the moment of truth comes, the day of reckoning. I'm still alive, and I sleep good, and I wake up the next day, and everything's fine. It's almost like we want something. Lord, 
I spent 10 years investing my energy into worrying and nothing happened. Could you make something happen here? I feel like I wasted all my time. And he would say, child, that's the point. Worry's unnecessary. Why did you invest, as a matter of stewardship now, all the energy I gave you and all the resources I gave you, worrying about that stuff? When I had it for you, it just, if you just would have been patient, I had it on my divine calendar. It was going to come in such and such a year at such and such a time. You wasted your time worrying. It's unnecessary. That's the point. He says there, notice, verse 34, each day has enough trouble of its own. And so why torment ourselves with tomorrow's troubles? Let's live in the present, dear friend. Let's learn, catch the word, learn, we can do this, to rely upon God's daily provision. It's like the manna, right? There's enough there for each day. If we can just trust him, we don't have to hoard it. And so let's meditate upon his consistent faithfulness throughout our lives. Has he been faithful to you in the past? Yes? Yes. Does he change? No. Again, do the math. So for the future, what's going to happen? He's going to continue to be faithful, right? You can rest in his character, in his faithfulness. Now, I know if some of you think I'm strange, and I'll admit I am. One of my hobbies is that I like to study sermons from church history. Sounds boring, doesn't it? It's actually really exciting. Usually what I'll do is I'll single out a preacher, I'll read his biography, and then read his sermons. And as he's preaching, as I'm reading, I can see what he's talking about, the challenges he went through at his church or in the society or whatever. And it's, for me, it's very helpful. And one of my favorite preachers from the Reformation era is Martin Luther. Now, all preachers have something that commend them. Some of the Scottish preachers, you're not going to beat them. They're so picturesque, so eloquent when they speak. It's like they're preaching in poetry. They all have their strengths. What I like about Martin Luther is he's very direct and he's vigorous. And he would be a, a, a popular preacher, I would argue, today with, with our younger generation. Because the younger generation wants it straight. Right, young people? You want it straight. And Martin Luther was straight. You'd almost say he was in your face. I mean, he was straight. And as you read him, he's vigorous. And he keeps your attention. Well, one thing I've learned through the years studying all these preachers is that pretty much all of them were influenced by other preachers. Everybody has their model or their hero that they look to, right? And so I've often wondered, who is Martin Luther's preacher of influence? Who was the one preacher above all else that influenced Martin Luther? And I finally discovered who it is. Anybody want to take a guess who it is? Not D.L. Moody. He came along a lot later. Well, let me uh, quote him. Here's what he says. I have one preacher that I love better than any other. Here it is. It is my little tame Robin, which preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs on the windowsill. He hops on the sill and takes as much as he needs. And from there, he always flies to a little tree close by, lifts up his voice to God, sings his song of praise and gratitude, tucks his head under his wing, and goes to sleep, leaving tomorrow to look after itself. Luther says he is the best preacher I have on earth. It's a lot we can learn from nature, right? Well, an even better preacher once wrote this, casting all your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. 
if you want it, it's 1 Peter 5, 7. In other words, what Peter is saying is what Jesus already said, and that is, do not worry. Why, Jesus? Here's why. Because worry is unreasonable. And worry is unbelief. And worry is unbecoming. And further, if that's not enough, worry is unnecessary. Now, I'm a professor, so I've been known to give homework assignments. So I'm giving you a homework assignment. Talk about stress. Here we go. I'm not going to grade you. I'll let the Lord do that. Uh-oh, stress level really goes up. No, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. But anyway, th th I really believe this can happen. I, I really believe that your worry, if you stay with this, your worry can actually be turned into a prayer prompter. It can be the alarm clock that causes you to pray. You've got to work at it, and you've got to pray even about doing this, right, and just being mindful of it. If you do anything long enough, you get good at it, right? And so whenever you begin to worry... Pray as far, in fact, if you've got a pen, you might want to write some of these down. Uh, as you're praying, you might want to ask this question. Lord, please reveal the cause and the nature of my worry. Lord, please reveal the cause and the nature of my worry. And then ask yourself the following questions. It's okay to talk to yourself. Because when you talk to yourself, you're guaranteed an intelligent audience, an interesting speaker. So it's okay to talk to yourself. So ask yourself the following questions. And be honest about it. Is my worry reasonable? Be honest about it. Am I worried because, quite frankly, I do not believe God? Is my worry an attractive testimony for my Lord? Is my worry necessary? And think about this one and write it down. Make your list. What is my worry accomplishing? You know how long your list is going to be? Nil. Zilch. Niente. Nothing. Worry doesn't accomplish anything good anyway. If you want to list the negatives, oh yeah, it's going to mess up your health and all kinds of things. Cause you to lose sleep. And then finally, pray, Lord, please take from me the source of my worry. Do you think he'll answer a prayer like that? Or is he going to say, nothing doing, I want you to keep worrying and don't trust me? No, no, that's not the God I know. He's always calling us to trust him, right? And so from his heart, from his mind, filled with compassion and great wisdom, Jesus says to you, whom he made, don't worry. Do not worry. Trust me. Let's, let's speak to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we choose to trust you. Even we acknowledge that the act of prayer itself is an act of dependence and trust. And you have come through for each of us over and over and over again. Your track record is excellent. And we know you don't change, and so we know we can continue to count on you today for today's troubles and for tomorrow's troubles. And until you call us home, Lord, you're going to be trustworthy. And so we choose just now to rest in you, and may that be an ever-growing experience in our lives, learning how to convert these, quote, worries into prayer and trust. We need your help for that. In the days ahead, Lord, pursue us in this matter until we can lift these things to you. We pray all this for your glory, for the good of others, and for our own blessing. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Praise the Lord.